Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to another edition of Beyond the Album Cover of yours truly, Jarrell Mason, where we get inside the entertainment industry and outside of that with those in the know and give them their flowers. Why are they here to be celebrated? With me right now, I have someone that's very special to me. When I was a freshman at UNCG in Greensboro, North Carolina, she taught my favorite class in my five years there, a class on hip hop. It was the only class where I was so excited to write a 10 page paper and was ready to turn it in the next day. But she has moved all around the country in various lanes of academia. And right now she is currently at Cal State University Bakersfield in the ethnic studies department. And you're gonna put some respect on her name, put that doctor in front of that. She earned that black girl magic and then some. Ladies and gentlemen, give a big round of applause and welcome to Beyond the Album Cover 2, Dr. Tracy Salisbury. Welcome to Beyond the Album Cover, Doctor. Thank you, young man. I appreciate that. I'm equally proud of you and I love our shared mutual history in my second adoptive home of Greensboro, North Carolina. Uh, I, I consider myself a Southern, Southern California girl, even though I'm back home in California. I miss North Carolina every day. Yeah, I miss North Carolina as well. I only get to go home every two years. And that's when I get to load up on Bojangles, cookout, everything that's pretty much basically <laughs> deep fried and lard. Right. If it ain't deep fried, it ain't right. <laughs> right. Yes, ma'am. So about oh, further Yes, ma'am. Without further ado, let's go ahead and jump right into it. How did you right. end up going into academia? Um, accidentally. Um, when I went back to grad school, the plan was the WNBA had started and the American Basketball League, which if not familiar, was the second women's pro league. And I had always had an interest in sports. Um, I had played basketball. I was a pretty good high school basketball player, had been recruited for college. And I wanted to work in that field. So I went back to school uh, to get a degree in sports administration. I had a job opportunity with one of the pro teams and I wanted to take that. And so, but they were saying, you know, you need a little more education, you need something more connected to it. So my job was to get my uh, sport administration degree and get out in 18 months and come right back. Uh, but my mentor and my advisor in my master's program were like, hey, have you ever considered being a professor? I had not. Um, had you considered going on to a PhD program? I had not. Um, and they talked me into applying for a fellowship and I ended up winning the fellowship. And so I decided to risk it. I went ahead and applied several places. Um, I had never been to North Carolina, uh, but when I got accepted to the University of North Carolina Greensboro, um, it was the best choice for me out of my choices. And it ended up changing my whole life. Um, I went down there and, and, and spent almost nine years down there. And uh, I had a blast. It was the best thing working with the students in the African-American studies program. It was the first time I got to teach my hip hop class the way I wanted. Um, it just, it made me realize something about myself I didn't know that I could teach and that I had um, the ability and the talent to teach. And so now, uh, 20 some odd years later, I'm Dr. Salisbury and uh, I love what I do and it makes me very happy. And uh, I'm at a point in my career where I'm coming full circle with all of my magnificent students, just like yourself, uh, where I've had just a little piece of involvement in your life and in your success. And that to me is one of the greatest things about being an educator. 
Right. And if you want to donate to help support your college students or United Negro College Fund, call this number at the bottom of your screen because a mind is a terrible thing to waste. Ain't that right, doctor? Yes, that's, that's most assuredly. I don't care if you go to college or not. The libraries are still open and reading is still free. So you should always be educating yourself. You should be a forever student. Yep, reading is fundamental and the more you know. Now, what part of California did you grow up in? And I was doing my research and saw that you completed undergraduate in Worcester, Mass. Is that correct? Uh, I am originally from Los Angeles. Uh, I got accepted to uh, a, a small private liberal arts college called Holy Cross College, or they sometimes they refer to as a College of the Holy Cross, which is in Worcester, Massachusetts. I thought it was Worcester too, uh, but I learned when I got there, it's Worcester, Massachusetts. They are world famous, I believe, for being where the uh, where uh, new kids on the block are from. Uh, they are also famous for where uh, the actor and comedian Dennis Leary is from, but Holy Cross is a very prestigious private Catholic institution um, I'll be honest, I went there because they gave me a full ride to go there. Uh, and that's why I went there. Um, it was a unique experience uh, as attending any predominantly white institution could be a unique experience for a black person. Um, yeah, it had a lot of influence on the things I do and it has a lot of influence on how I teach. It was the epitome of difference of, of why I teach a certain way and why I mentor my students a certain way because it was things I didn't get when I was an undergraduate that I thought I should have. Right, because I'm sure that full ride was well worth it because that cold weather made you think like, man, let me get back oh, I west. Can't stand the <laughs> I can't stand the snow. You are so right. Um, you know, four years in Massachusetts snow wasn't that bad. It was seven years in Indiana snow that did me in. Uh, if I ever go back anywhere back to the East Coast where it snows, the only choice will be North Carolina. Mm. So you yeah. mentioned going up in LA and what was that like for you growing up in that time frame where, you know, gang activity was very heavy with Crips, Bloods, the various gangs and how kids had to move and shake in and around the neighborhoods. Like if you didn't know nobody in Jordan Downs or Nickerson Gardens or on Florence and Normandy, you better not be over there because you were going to get checked. <laughs> well, um, I kind of grew up, I'm a Generation X. Um, I did grow up in the heart of kind of, of that time and in the heart of the crack cocaine epidemic. Um, I grew up in Baldwin Hills. A lot of people are familiar with Baldwin Hills because of the TV show. That wasn't my life, uh, but I grew up in that, well, I guess what you would consider kind of an exclusive neighborhood. Uh, we didn't have a lot of money, uh, but it was basically, um, not a part of some of that dangerous culture. My grandmother lived in the hood. She lived off of uh, Crenshaw and Haldale. Um, and I went there every day. Um, she was the neighborhood babysitter. So I had a pass because we had a lot of respect. You know, people would say that's, you know, that's Miss Ida's granddaughter. She plays basketball, leave her alone. So I hustled on about my own business. Um, you know, it was a different time. Uh, you know, the violence was not as high, you know, there was fist fights and, you know, that kind of thing. And someone would get their butt beat, maybe on occasion if somebody gets stabbed. Uh, but in the nineties, it was different. It was, it was uh, the old West. It was, uh, uh, guns and have your own, um, uh, you know, I mean, LA's always been a tough place. It's a big city. Um, you belong where you belong. Um, but 
I loved my childhood. I loved growing up. There was all kinds of fascinating things. It's um, becoming gentrified. So the things that are going away are a lot of the things I loved when I was a kid and no longer kind of recognizable because they're being taken over because the where the Los Angeles Rams and the, which is weird for me to say now, and the Los Angeles Chargers, which is even weirder, um, are, are spaces where they're pushing black and brown folks out. And these used to be the places I hung out as a kid. I mean, now, I mean, Crenshaw High School was actually closed for a while. I actually think it's been reopened to be a magnet school. It's a very different space. Everybody wants to live here, but they're not from here, which is a hard thing when you're from Cali. But all the cool spaces, the stuff you saw in Boys in the Hood or the stuff you saw in Men's to Society, some of that is being taken away. And that's a shame. Yeah, you're not going to get Jack for a double burger with cheese at a Starbucks or Whole Foods. <laughs> you also ain't going to get that double burger with cheese at a Starbucks or a Whole Foods. Uh, they're trying to move out that little fat burger, too. And that's a historic fat burger. Oh, man. Now, I want to stay on L.A. and the birth of West Coast hip hop, because prior to N.W.A., Dr. Dre, Snoop and everything, yeah, acts such as Egyptian Lover, L.A. Dream Team, the influential radio station K-Day, who I had a chance to interview, uh, Greg Mack, on two okay. separate occasions. And what was that like hearing the early sounds of West Coast not only out in LA, but if you go up further north in the Bay Area with Too Shore and everything that was coming out of Oakland, San Francisco. Um, well, one of the things I love about West Coast, Coast hip hop, you know, like people think Tupac, I mean, Too Short was so horrifically scandalous. He was, but you also forget how young he was. You know, when, when Too Short was coming out, he was like 14. And so, you know, for us that were like in middle school, the same age as him, we were like, oh, he's so bad, you know, and uh, I didn't appreciate the time that I really appreciate now that he was an independent artist, that he had no record contract whatsoever, not really, that he was part of an independent label and they did all their advertising and there used to be all this, I mean, he was very memorable because they had these homemade black and white flyers and they would have all these artists put out, but Too Short was the big artist. And it, it was just so much fun to, to be around that type of thing. And this is back when we had tapes, folks, you know, musical tapes and, and, uh, and, and little albums. Uh, Ice-T was huge. You know, this is, you know, you knew Darlene because of the album cover. You had to have that album, Power to Power album because of that cover. Uh, but Too Short was a big deal. You know, all of these folks were um, reflecting on early Cali life. Like, you know, you had a... a uh, Toddy T with the Bataram. This was something you really had an idea of you saw. And so these were things that connected you to your neighborhood. Um, the first time I ever heard NWA is a really good friend of mine. I was leaving on the plane uh, one year to go to, to back to college. I think it was my sophomore year. And he said, you know, you got to hear this tape. And it was a homemade tape. And it was, um, it wasn't, it was Dope Man was on that tape, but the song I liked was Eight Ball Junkie. And so, you know, it was, it was, you didn't really know who those guys were, but you knew it was a different sound. Regardless of what, and it wasn't even, didn't have a name Gangsta Rap yet. You, you were just like, dang, these dudes are different. And so you could really tell. It, it just, um, Egyptian Prince and those guys didn't turn me on so much. I knew that that was kind of interesting hip hop, but 
it didn't do as much for me as like Parliament of Funkadelic and all of those guys that were going at the time. Uh, rap really got my attention when NWA kind of came on the scene. And then K-Day had young artists doing these freestyles. And you could listen to the show. And when I started hearing females rapping, because I didn't really think girls could rap. You know, I, I thought that was what only dudes do. So when I started hearing girls, I was like, oh, man. And then I think by the time I came home my sophomore year, hip hop, West Coast hip hop was exploding because East Coast hip hop, I knew girls over on the East could do it. I didn't think West Coast girls were rapping, but that's what made the difference for me is when West Coast girls started rapping when I saw them coming in. Um, uh, but I was a Too Short fan very early and an NWA fan very early. Right. And then we also look at E-40, uh, Hammer even, because before he got signed to Capitol, he was popping the records out of the trunk, selling it, making enough, making enough buzz, and then Capitol came knocking. And everybody giving Hammer his due now, but how back in the golden era, they were lambasting Hammer for crossing rap over to pop, which is what you needed. You needed to act like a Hammer or Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince to go to the suburbs and then, of course, the infamous diss by a third base in the gas face video of rest in peace mf doom formerly known as zev love x from kmd well i think um folks were mad at hammer but the west coast wasn't because it, mc hammer was unique i wish people really could understand the phenomenon when he caught his he was this throwback to james brown he was like this hip-hop james brown and when he was like um he called himself the hardest working man in show business. That's when he got a, a the first he he the first time I ever saw Hammer was I think I saw a guy concert and he was part of this group. Well, you hear this announcement coming over the screen, this go over the the sound going, "Here comes the hardest working man in show business," and then uh. Dun, 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 dun. and they would come from the back of the arena and he had like a hundred people and they would come out dancing and they would go and uh god they put me in the mix and it just would be on and mc hammer i had never been so entertained at a hip-hop show the man knew how to put on a show and they would dance they would go uh, that Oak Town 357, I probably one of the few people that saw them live, um, and they would go, and it would be any time in concert that you make people forget the act that came before you, and then you put pressure on the act that came after you, that was MC Hammer. I will give MC Hammer his flowers all the time because the man was a phenomenal uh, performer, um, people should have never been surprised, like you said, when Capitol came knocking and he started putting out records. His records weren't that different. It was well known what his reputation was coming from up north, that he was a sports star, that he had been kind of hard. He was from the hood. You know, um, he put his work together. He earned his career. People, I think, got very mad because, you know, he made a lot of money and it wasn't about the beats. Um, but he was an entertainer. And I don't think he ever presented himself as being anything different than an entertainer. He never said he was a wordsmith. He never said he was a major lyricist. 
And, you know, people get mad at, at different times uh, at, in hip hop over people that make a lot of money. If Hammer had not blown up as big and had kind of only stayed, you know, in the middle, I think his legacy would be a lot different. You know, he also made a lot of money and he lost him out a, lot, a lot of money too, which gave him a certain kind of reputation. But MC Hammer is one of the great ones from Cali and people shouldn't forget that. For sure. I'm sure some of you were wearing the British nights he was pushing <laughs> or watching the Hammerman cartoon that had the dolls somewhere sitting back, hoping that it can be a collector's item. And I believe Hammer is one of the rare artists that actually got the late great Prince to clear a sample because he sampled when does cry for prey. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you was wearing them genie pants, so don't tell nobody you wasn't. And because uh, uh, I remember when New Edition was going on tour and they were wearing them hammer pants. So, you know, he influenced the style. Um, you know, hip hop sometimes has selective memory because they only want to be remembered as a particular kind of way. Um, I think that's unfortunate. We should be pleased and proud of ourselves that we are an expansive genre. We are a genre with lots of different styles. We are a genre with, that had a lot of room for different people. And uh, uh, Cali has always had that showmanship, Egyptian prince, all those guys showed up like that. We learned that from Parliament Funkadelic that now people call George Clinton. Those gaudy outfits and that uh, ability, because the point was when people paid their money to see a concert, you wanted to see the whole arena field. Prince did this, Rick James did this. So this it, MC Hammer was no different as an MC to, to do that. Um, even for a while, I remember when I saw LL Cool J at the I'm the Type of Guy tour, um, he was dancing and wearing green pants and all, all kinds of stuff. You know, I want to see an a artist that has some style, um, you know, Fresh Prince. You know, I wish people seen Will Smith early in his career when he was the Fresh Prince. He was a magnificent dancer. Him and Jazzy Jeff, that man, I never saw those cats put on a show like that since. You know, we... Hip hop sometimes unfortunately strangles things because we decide it's not cool anymore. And that's unfortunate because you take away talents from people that we don't know they have. And you know we shouldn't do that. We should let artists be free. That's why Lil Nas X is kind of a, a breath of fresh air. His music isn't necessarily my taste, but his dancing, his showmanship is. So, you know, I just wish we would let it be. I agree. And you think about this is at a time before hip hop became mainstream and it was still very segregated, depending on what region you're in, because rarely you heard a West Coast record on a New York station or a Southern record on a West Coast station and vice versa. And it was kind of like you didn't really meet in the middle. But I think the changing point for rap that really took it over the top mainstream wise was Dr. Dre. In the chronic and it's funny to think that next year it'd be 30 years since the chronic and how we're Thank getting a west coast hip-hop flavored super bowl halftime show with dre snoop kendrick lamar mary j blige and eminem so what was your take on dr dre and the whole movement with him and death row and snoop i would say growing up i really did think there was an age cap on hip-hop I, I was really worried that you would have your artists, your favorite artists would get aged out. And so it's something to me to watch these guys mature and do their work and still do their work and do their thing to see Snoop still around after so much death. Um, you know, uh, I'm a big Kumo D fan. And, you know, it, it, uh, he kind of got aged out 
And I, I think, you know, this is a supremely talented man. He went toe for toe in all those years of beef with LL Cool J. Um, you know, but it is nice. I'm looking forward to that big LA Super Bowl. I don't watch football much anymore. I will watch that Super Bowl um, just to watch those people. Um, I think, you know, the chronic is a benchmark in terms of talent. Um, it just was so much phenomenal talent um, behind that. Um, you know, the people involved in that and the doors it opened for talented people. And then truly that became the benchmark of West Coast hip hop, not disrespecting all the wonderful people you named before, because uh, we lost some people. That's the thing, the violence on the West Coast, we lost some people. Uh, but Dr. Dre's chronic is the benchmark of truly nationwide West Coast rap where other people had to kind of say, dang, they got this, the West Coast got this. You know, as much as the, the, the gangster rap era was marked with violence, um, we had a run where we shut down the business, you know, where the West Coast was definitely running hip hop and it forced East Coast rap, New York rap to reboot. And then we got a double blessing if you're a hip hop fan because their re reboot, they came back better than ever. And then, you know, it, it, it opened up doors to crunk music, to Southern music, which is to me a beautiful phenomenon. And, uh, you know, uh, you're going to put Outkast up there with Dr. Dre because it's phenomenal classic music that's going to be around as a classic when I'm in the old folks home. You know, I mean, I tell my students now, you were one of those students, Drell, that um, teaching hip hop in the academy was fresh and you guys could nod ahead with me. And uh, I remember you guys were the ones who introduced me to Kanye West. Uh, but uh it was fun to be in that thing. Now I'm at a certain age, my students struggle. They probably wouldn't know some of these West Coast names you laid out. And so now I'm to the point, I'm like, back in the day, we had good music. Y'all listen to trash, you know? So it, it's a different, it's, 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 it's interesting to grow old and love hip hop. Yeah, I agree. Cause I feel old as dirt now. Cause I see young kids wearing t-shirts with Ice Cube's picture on it, and they only yes. know him as the guy that made family movies. I'm like, no. Yes. See Death Certificate. See America's Most Wanted. L listen to Jackin' for Beats. That's the Ice Cube I grew up with. Can I ask you what you think about that? That because you know you're 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 now the age I was when I first started teaching. Um. What, what do you think about that, that these artists that we really love that were really controversial and groundbreaking now, and it is, it is so funny to me that Ice Cube is looked at as this lovable kind of kid actor. And I was like, no, this the dude, <laughs> you know, how do y'all, this wrong. I, yeah, I've struggled with that one. Yeah, I think it's, it's kind of a good thing to see the elder statesmen of hip hop, like you stated earlier, grow and mature and spread their wings, see what I did there, and just really parlay their success into different realms, like to see Will Smith, Queen Latifah, LL Cool J, and the likes go from being known for on the entertainment side, acting side, to where you forget like, man, they were rappers at one point. And I'm like, let Queen Latifah get on the mic and still spit a hot 16. That's why it was so big that Rhapsody ended up getting her on her album a couple of years ago on a track mm -hmm. to show that, hey, don't let this Hollywood money fool you. I still got it. Yes. 
Queen Latifah was one of the best concerts I ever saw when I was living in New Jersey. Um, she was the headliner, um, but I got to see um, Black Sheep, who I loved. Um, uh, boy, who the hip hop junkies got? Nice, nice and, and smooth. smooth and oh my God, nice and smooth. Um, God, that was a great show. But Queen Latifah was the headliner, and I, I'll never forget that. That um, you know, people miss Queen Latifah. Y'all missed her run, boy, because she was a great artist. Uh, but Black Sheep, phenomenal too. Uh, that's how I got to see Third Base too. Oh my God. Um, yeah, East Coast, um, you know, during that time too, that whole, uh, uh, the Jungle Brothers, all of that was really phenomenal hip hop. That golden age of hip hop is is just lovely. You know, uh, uh, youngsters, y'all don't have that. I, I, I can say that with affirmity. You guys do not have that level of skill you do not have that level of talent buster rhymes early buster rhymes you guys don't have any of that and uh uh and that's sad you know when i look at some of the rappers now i kind of am like god do you guys know your history because you could be a little more interesting you could be a little more innovative you know get in the get in the racks and do some listening and before you put out another album. Too much material. I don't know what you think is kind of what makes hip hop struggle now, but one of the things is social media has made it available to have too much material out. Some of these rappers are not good enough to have out a, a regular studio album and three or four albums on that piff. You know, you're not that interesting, dude. Mm, no, I, I agree because I look at the 90s golden era is getting revisited by the youth of today because if you look at, you know, fashion aesthetics, cross colors, champion, Carl Kanai, it's coming back in style. And then the critically acclaimed Hulu series of Wu-Tang, a lot of people are rediscovering or discovering Wu-Tang for the first time. Let's talk about Wu-Tang for a quick second. How yeah, let's have, talk about Wu-Tang. Yes, Wu-Tang is for the children. So how you have <laughs> nine individual MCs that can all spit as a group and as individuals and be solo stars. And we gotta give Rizzo his flowers for being smart on the business end too. Yeah, they were always about the business. You know, Rizzo and Jizzo always right from the beginning knew that they were not all gonna sign to the same label, that it was important for them to get their own deals, to create their own identities. I love from the beginning that they had these alter egos, that they had these comic book uh, alter egos. Um, I'm a huge Wu-Tang fan. I'm a Wu-Tang fanatic. Um, I had the pleasure of getting to see them once in North Carolina before Old Dirty Bastard uh, passed away. And then I recently got to see them here in California um, in the closest incarnation of a full group um, ever. And then it was awesome because Old Dirty Bastard's son came out who looks and sounds just like him and came out and, and performed with them. Uh, it was an amazing uh, show. Uh, uh, Fat Lip uh, was DJing um, from the far side. So that was pretty cool, but it was a great show. Um, actually, it was pretty fun because I was telling my students about it today because it was like, I didn't think it would sell out. I thought it would be a bunch of old heads in there, but it was actually packed with like these 18 to 25 Latinx kids. And we had a blast because they were in there and they knew every word. Wu-Tang is forever. <laughs> and they're nothing to mess with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and diversify your bonds, protect your neck. Wu-Tang insurance, yep. protect your neck. 
protect the neck. I always like Triumph, you know, Gravel Pit. Um, I just love Wu-Tang. I got to interview RZA for the hip hop class. Um, he's an amazing guy. He's a brilliant guy. Um, you know, talking chess with RZA was probably one of the most golden moments of my career as an e educator. Um, he is, he's a truly, truly brilliant individual. Um, you know, I think he doesn't get enough credit for that. Uh, but I am a huge fan. Right. We're going to come back to the hip hop, but I'm going to swing over to the new Jack swing period. Now, little fun fact, y'all, Captain Rap, Bad Times, I Just Can't Stand It was one of the early productions by Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. This was before the infamous firing from the time and how out of that movement with what they were doing, Teddy Riley, Ellie and Babyface, and how you had a sound that meshed hip hop and R&B, because if you think about R&B pre-1987, it was very quiet storm, adult, Luther, mm -hmm. Freddie Jackson, Sade, Anita Baker. But then by the time Key Sweat, Guy, New Edition, Troop, New Kids on the Block, and even, I, I want to say this right now, Full Force had a hand early on in kind of getting that sound with what they were doing with Lisa Lisa and the Cold Jam, UTFO, they had the blueprint, but then it was Teddy Riley and Keith Sweat's Make It Last Forever album that really kicked the door down. I love that, that run through you just went through there. That's, you just you just hit all my college years right there going through, running through that. I, that's, that's how you and I connected. I don't think a lot of people know how you and I connected because we would talk about hip hop and then you'd be that one voice, Dr. Salisbury. And I'd be like, I ain't a doctor yet. You'd be like, oh, Professor Salisbury, don't forget the 90s. Don't forget 90s R&B. And I always hear your voice all these years in the back of my head whenever I teach about music, I always hear Jarrell Mason's voice. Professor, we don't forget about the 90s. And, and I always try to remember that because it's facts. You were always right about that. Uh, 90s music, as the time goes on, 90s music dominates as a beautiful era. And we just need to, you know, and I think, as you said, it is true. Young people of today are looking back and they're seeing, wow, this was some really great music. Um, you know, it's, it's like New Edition, who never really broke up. Um, you know, in its two incarnations with Bobby Brown and then with Johnny Gill, um, New Edition was ours. That's what I loved about New Edition. You know, white America would not allow the uh, New Edition guys to be the sex symbols in their little white daughter's bedroom. But it was okay if black girls had pictures of Jordan Knight from New, New Kids on the Block. But I love New Edition and I will always give New Edition their props because New Kids on the Block was the weaker white version of them and were copying what they did, the same producers. And, but uh, uh, New Edition was uh, a, a magnificent boy band who grew into men. You see what I'm doing there, boys? Two men um, that gave everything when they performed. And regardless of how you feel about Bobby Brown, Bobby Brown was a perfect um, separation from that group to become a solo artist. It's, it's, I think it's something unique that says the power about the group that he can't ever quit them, that part of his identity is connected to New Edition forever, but he stands alone too as a solo artist and was extremely unique, regardless of his problems and the tragedy of his later life. 
um, and people have gotten a better appreciation for his original debut album, which I think is a lot solider than people realize. But that, my prerogative album, is one of the essentials of 90s music, R&B. And he should get his flowers for people remembering that. Um, you know, um, but New Jack Swing and Teddy Riley, um, you know, Babyface, uh, you know, these guys really created, I like how you described it as um, uh, uh, 80s music R&B was kind of this midnight soul for grown people. And I think Teddy Riley and Babyface modernized that and made it for young people. And then it just broadened it for everybody. Because Luther thrived too. And so it gave a space for Luther. Now, uh, my favorite, Freddie Jackson, kind of got ran over a little bit. But it thrived for Luther. It thrived for Sade. So I do think it did create a broader world. So I really like your analogy to that. Right. And then also, too, right around the same period, you have the emergence of the Brit soul movement coming from across the pond with, like we mentioned, Sade. You have acts such as 52nd Street, Loose Ends. Shout out to Lamar and BMF. You can't stop the rain cutting everybody waters off. And yeah. everything that was coming out of the UK, wham, George Michael. And fun fact, Faith was the first album by a white artist to go number one on the R&B charts because he was getting airplay not only on Top 40 and AC radio, but R&B radio. His video was were on Video Soul. BET, he won the AMA for Best R&B Album, R&B Performer. And it was just a great meshing. Even New Kids on the Block, they were originally marketed as an R&B group, did a bootleg version of Please Don't Go Girl that was on BET, did Soul Train, did Apollo, paid their dues performing in R&B crowds, but once the pop market got a hold of them, that was when everything went kaput, but we got to give Maurice Star credit. He had the vision, had the plan, said, I'm going to do this, and it's going to be Forrest Biles, because pretty much their camp was predominantly black. And back then... <laughs> And they did make a lot of money. Yes, they did. And I'm not mad at that. Um, I think George Michael was successful because he respected the music and he respected people in the music. So he was the epitome of blue-eyed soul. Um, you know, you don't have to push to be accepted somewhere. Your music will speak for itself. And so George Michael kind of stayed in black favor because he understood um, to how to do the music and how to respect the music. Um, you know, that was the magnificent difference. Um, that was one of the things that Vanilla Ice forgot. Um, black people got a little jealous, you know, because he hit number one and he made all that dang money. Um, but Vanilla Ice also forgot to make sure the people let people know he had started in the culture. He tried to act like he invented that stuff himself and that's what got him into hot water. Um, if we ever really want to take ourselves to task about our uh, prejudice within hip hop, it would be the Beastie Boys. The Beastie Boys were some badass white dudes and black folks uh, got in their feelings about their success. Uh, but the Beastie Boys uh, were always about the culture. They always worked hard when they put their music together and we should have responded differently as an audience to their work. Um, I think they were hurt by that. I think they uh, felt that they were making music for black people and the people weren't hearing them. Um, but they have endured and we've been given a second chance to respect their legacy. And that's an important thing. Um, one of the things I'd like to say about Loose Ends, because I'm a huge Loose Ends fan, um, that Brit R&B uh, was deeply, deeply important to making 
forcing U.S. R&B to be more sophisticated, um, to be more beats layered. You know, regardless of how you feel about Kanye West, and Kanye gets on my nerves, you're on my Facebook, you know Kanye gets on my nerves. But I will always say Kanye West's ability to make music is almost untouchable. His ability to weave all kinds of different samples together, live music, voices, is his, that is where his talent lies. He'll never be one of the greatest rappers, but in terms of music and production, particularly when he takes his time or people let him work through his complicated genius, he is remarkable. Mm -hmm. Definitely agree, because I remember being a senior in high school, hearing Through the Wire for the first time or Champions off of the Dream Team mixtape. I played mm -hmm. that song three times in a row because I was intrigued. Like, who is this person sampling Queen? Because I always thought Kanye was a light-skinned dude with cornrows. But when I first saw his visual of Through the Wire and Jesus Waltz, I was like, oh. And then he put out his later stuff. I'm like, okay, this guy is really something serious. Despite all his issues aside, he's a talented brother genius now i want to get into one r&b group i mentioned them earlier they're my second favorite group right under new edition who i felt should have had more steam more push very underrated they had a knack of covering songs making it their own and had a chance to interview four of the five members of this group rp reggie warren let's talk about troop yeah let's talk about troop um man you are so right troop is underrated um, uh, I think what happened to Troop is sometimes what happens to rock and roll bands. Too many ballads. Um, you know, when you can knock a ballad out the park, sometimes you get pushed over to the side that you're not making the ass shaking music. And Troop could do a ballad. And they had some singers. And I think at the time where, you know, Teddy Riley and them were always, you know, boom, 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 that type sound. Troops sometimes mix it up and they brought in that ballad. And I think it made people forget about their power. But when you play a troop song, all of a sudden everybody knows it. So Troop is one of those groups that unfortunately for them, it's sort of relegated to you have to remember their greatness. Um, you know, um, yeah, I'm a big troop fan too. I don't know what to do about that, young man. That that is hard to, they're a hard group to recenter. Um you know, it's, um, I think also too, they never got, had that charismatic lead singer person that people latched onto. They always kind of stayed troop. It's sort of like mid-condition. You didn't get that guy that you latched onto. It's like H-Town. The twins, even though you knew who the lead singer was, he really wasn't that charismatic of a guy for you to go, yeah, I remember him. And I think that's also what hurt troop is that they didn't have that one guy that kind of stood out. You know, uh, New Edition, when you look at it, they had almost every dude still gonna, could have stood out on New Edition. You know, it, it's, you know, Johnny Gill was a well-known product, but Ralph Tresvant, you know, was, was, you know, you were the falsetto guy. Bobby Brown was the bad boy no matter what happened. But the Belle Biv DeVoe guys all had their kind of unique personality. Personality is important. So I do think Troop suffers from, they were actually a group that was friends, family, and um, they didn't have this one person that people would say, such and such gonna go solo soon. 
So I, I think that's where Troop suffers because it, it, they didn't have that guy that someone would remember, you know, oh, such and such from Troop. I think that's what hurts them. They remember it as a group instead of this group of, of really good singers that had some great bangers and that you could connect to. And I think it's unfortunate. Yeah, now I don't know if you know this, Dr. Salisbury. I had a chance to interview Chucky Booker back on the time machine. And okay. He told me that Turned Away was originally supposed to go to Troop. Wow. But here's, here's well, what happened. Here's what happened. Um, he played it for Sylvia Rohn, who was head of Atlantic. And she told him, nope, this is going on your album. And he told her, no, this is a Troop record. She was like, nope, this is for you. He told Troop, Sylvia said that it's going on my album. And they were like, man, we want a song similar. And that's how we get Spread My Wings. Okay. Well, shoot. Um, you know, but I think that's sometimes that's true too. You're one song away, one album away from being the group of remembered of all time. Um, you know, sometimes that 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 helps with your legacy. Um, Troop is what I call a old school OG music head lovers group. It's like Midnight Star. It's like Atlantic Star. You know, um, the average, you know, Per, black person of a particular age will know who those groups are. Um, you know, it's like um, Angela, Renee and Angela. You know, it's like, you know, when you say that and, and everybody goes, you know, Angela, uh, Angela Wimbush is, you know, is all of that. And people go, who's Angela Wimbush? And I'll go, oh my God, is something wrong with you? And, uh, you know, one of the cool things about loving hip hop and about loving R&B is that you have these hidden gems is the best way I can put it. And they forever kind of stay yours. They don't quite go all the way out. It's like Tina Marie. I love Tina Marie. Uh, you know, for me, unfortunately, my favorite artists are all deceased. Um, Tupac, you know, uh, Tina Marie and Prince. Um, so all the music I grew up with, those artists are passed away. And that hurts my feelings beyond anything. So kind of, I'm kind of a step back from a lot of music because the artists I truly love beyond the Wu-Tang Clan, my group, my, my hip hop group is still around, um, but my artists, my solo artists are not. So it's very um, challenging for me to kind of fall in love with anybody else in that sense. I'm kind of gun shy at this point that something might happen to somebody. I'm a big Rhapsody fan. Um, um, I wish I could, we were in a different social situation so she could tour. Um, Meg Thee Stallion is doing some very interesting stuff. I actually went to a virtual concert for her um, and, and she's interesting, um, but I haven't captured, I don't know, you'll have to help me. I haven't really captured that R&B singer that I find that I like. Um, Chris Brown has done some interesting things, but he's such an unlikable individual. Mm -hmm. it, it's kind of hard to stick with him. Um, you know, Trey Songs has done some interesting stuff, but he's kind of a, a floppy kind of artist. I don't know how much he creates himself. I, I don't know what my rules might sort of be like yours, Jarrell. I want to know you're a creator. I want to know that the writing, you have some say in it, that you know something about the music. If you're just some dude that walks into the studio and somebody else has already written a song and did all the beats and you don't say anything, I kind of see you as cookie cutter. Right, yeah, just a carbon copy. So before we transition to talking about 
the glove one, the late great Michael Jackson and the late Prince and the supposed rivalry between the two groups and also throwing some Rick James in there as well. I want to talk about real quickly, the I think the two unsung heroes of the new Jack Swing sound, one that everybody kind of knows, but you got to be a true music head to know. Then another one who got his beginnings on Troop Attitude and Joy Spinderella Irby before really catching fire with TLC and then doing production on Boyz II Men, Cool Out Harmony. So can we talk about the impact of Kyle West and Dallas Austin? I'm a big Dallas Austin fan. Um, I, I, um, I think he worked quietly, but he was also kind of a dude. Well, I guess, you know, if I look at Dallas Austin, I, I co compare him to Jermaine Dupree. Jermaine Dupree was also an entertainer. Dallas Austin wasn't necessarily so. I know Dallas did try to do some groups on his own and it just didn't really go in terms of his own performance. But Jermaine Dupree, I think, is remembered more and more respect needs to be put on Jer Jermaine Dupree's name because he is in the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Uh, but Dallas Austin gets underrated even though his production and he produced a number of people that would not have been hits and was responsible for a lot of that Atlanta sound, um, I think came from, you know, once again, you have to shine. Unfortunately, this business, you have to shine or you really have to be known as, you know, uh, like Night Wonder, you really have to be known as this amazing, amazing producer. Otherwise you get forgotten. So I think these guys, like um, you said, Kyle West and, and uh, Dallas Austin have been forgotten about because um, they were subtle producers. You know, their names were always consistent. They were always working. They were workaholics. And that was the other thing. They didn't have time. You know, Jermaine Dupree was a showman. He was like a P.T. Barnum of hip hop and R&B. He was always promoting and he was always working. Dallas Austin and Kyle West always let their music speak for itself. So I think people, those in the know, that's one of the things that's different about, um, what do you call it, digital music? Mm -hmm. One of the cool things about buying the CD and one of the cool things about buying the cassette tape is you can bust it all out and go, who produced this? Dang, such and such wrote this, look at this. I can't believe such, it's like um, people finding out how many songs Little Yachty is writing for people. Whatever you say about Little Yachty, Little Yachty is talented. You know, you may not like his style, his hip, his MC style, but that dude is writing a lot and he's creating some very unique things, particularly for women. And so Jermaine Dupree and Dallas Austin had a way of touching into that female audience and writing songs for women that I thought was uniquely important because it was, it was something about, Brad talks about this a lot, that it was something about credibility that you needed some guy to kind of help you get in the industry. You weren't gonna get in it any other way. And that what you wanted was a dude like Dallas Austin or a dude like Jermaine Dupree who would listen to you when you added your part and would be open to adding your little influence into your work so you could get the opportunity to write. And so I think that's the importance of these guys you're talking about is that they were workaholic, subtle producers that created a movement of music and didn't really care about being personally famous. But it's unfortunate that there's not a space for their work to be remembered in terms of people going, you know Dallas Salsa produced this, you know such and such wrote this. And I think that's what would help. 
Right. And what would help too is if you go to Beyond the Album Cover and check out my interview with Mr. Break It Down himself, Kyle West, and a rare interview because he rarely gives interviews. So definitely check that out. And what's your favorite Kyle West production and song or, or work? Whew. It's, it's, it's hard. I'm going to have to go the work that he did, him and Al B did on uh, Tevin Campbell's debut album. I have to go along with you. Woo! That now. Oh, awesome. Uh, Tevin Campbell's debut album, People Sleep on That. Uh, people Sleep on Tevin Campbell, but because uh, Tevin Campbell could sing. And uh, yeah, yeah. And I think we're having a better appreciation for I'll Be Sure for the short time he was in the business. Um, you know, yeah, there were some, you know, one of the things about loving 90s music, though, there was a lot of heavy hitters. There was a lot of very interesting people. And it was also a rough time, though. You know, I was seeing, um, I'll be sure said this morning that um, Christopher Williams may be very ill in a coma. Mm. Um, I hope that's not so. Uh, but you got to remember, there was some phenomenal talent in the 90s. And there was a lot of casualties. There was a lot of people that got lost that didn't make it to the 2000s. Uh, but there was some phenomenal people. The level of talent in the 90s was, was just way up here. Yes, I agree. Because intro should have been a lot bigger. Their debut album, still a banger. I mean, Dame Dollar, Damian Lillard had the sample Don't Leave Me on the record that he did. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. this, per this person just deceased. Everybody... Knew him as one third of the Fat Boys, but his production work along with Corey Rooney definitely should be mentioned and put in high regard because the free album and the Love Daddy album slept on Prince Marky D. I, I agree. I think there's a lot of albums from the 90s, and someone should talk about this that the one and doneers, there was a one and doneers that it didn't have nothing to do with the quality of the music. It's just that you couldn't break through that level of talent. And we couldn't, you couldn't get heard. And then the group broke up before it had a chance to get to a second album. There is some phenomenal one and doneers in the 1990s. I, I agree. Coming of age, um, group that TQ was in before he went solo, they were solely underrated. Uh, Barrio Boys put out the How We Roll album in 95. Mm -hmm. Whitehead Brothers on Motown. You check out my interview with yes. Whitehead. Yes. And um, another group. I don't know if you if you remember this group. They were signed to Atlantic Records around 93. Four-man vocal group based out of New Orleans. Had a record called Ain't Nothing Wrong. They went by The Real Seduction. Mm-hmm. I have that. <laughs> he not interviewed them as well, so you can check that out on Beyond the Album Cover as well. So before we go into MJ and Prince, I want to sure. talk about the influence of this four-man vocal group from my neck of the woods, North Carolina. Casey, JoJo, Dalvin, and Devontae, collectively known as Jodeci. Okay. All right. Those are my boys. Um, man, um, I guess how I will put them, Jodeci is like what um, Eddie Murphy said when people compared him to Bill Cosby or Michael Jackson when he got seen out on a date with Brooke Shields. And he said, y'all just upset because you know Bill Cosby will take Brooke Shields home. You know I'm going to do something else. And so, you know, a new addition, we're kind of, with the exception of Bobby, we're considered these good guys. Um, uh, uh, Jodeci was the bad boys. You knew they were up to no good, and that was wonderful about them. Um, they had a clear personality. 
Um, they had a good mix of the vocals and a good mix of, cause you know, uh, 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 the pretty boys couldn't really sing, uh, but you know, KC and JoJo really had the singing and the other two were just kind of pretty backup. Uh, but uh, their shows were phenomenal. I, I don't know how to put it to people that young girls is growing up, young girls, young adult women, we rarely had the opportunity like white girls do to go to a concert and be just fawning over the artist. And Jodeci was one of those groups you could do that with and they catered to you. And that was where the uniqueness where black girls, little black teenage girls and black young women were considered the object of the attention for a concert. That, that, that means a great deal. I think that's very underrated that you, you, you know, that you don't have that. Um, you know, they created an adultness to young adult hip hop and R&B, if, if that makes sense. Um, you know, that was in highly enjoyable. Um, their uniqueness, um, but I also think these, they were also students of history, you know, that, that um, you know, it, 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 they admired Michael Jackson, they admired Prince, they wanted to perform like that, they wanted to be viewed like that, and so that was a different uh, level of attention in terms of how they put their work together, about how they performed live, and so I think, you know, those groups that did that, um, particularly Jodeci gave life to music in a particular kind of way and created music of their own. And Prince grudgingly gave them admiration. He wasn't always high with his praise, but you know, uh, he had a connection to Jodeci like he had a connection to Timberland and Missy Elliott. And he would tell them, stop complaining about people copying you. Copying you is a, is a, is a compliment. You know, go on and do something new they can't do. And so that was the uniqueness that some of these people that had those bridges to these old heads who were amazing, like Prince and Michael Jackson, you know, you know, uh, where they just did their thing and that he taught them, you know, it's OK to be an originator, be an originator. Right. Because if you look at Michael Jackson and Prince, they both studied the acts that came before them, like a James Brown, Slime mm -hmm. Family Stone, Jackie, Jackie Wilson, w Wilson Pickett. And the older I've gotten, I come to a greater appreciation, understanding of Prince's ability to say, I'm not going to rest on my laurels and just give y'all proper reign 40 times a night. I'm going to still create because I'm an artist first. And if they like my music, they like it. If they don't, they don't. Nope, While Michael they don't. was very fan centric. I'm going to give you the hits. I'm going to give you what you want because you all made me. Well, and Michael was the creator in the moment. You know, he didn't write a lot and he wasn't a musician. Uh, Prince was a musician and Prince did a lot of writing. Um, Prince, uh, it, you know, Prince was someone who was, he said he couldn't live without working. So he was somebody that, you know, he was always creating. Uh, Michael Jackson was an entertainer. I think that's one of the things that people forget that is a value between being a musician and an entertainer. Prince was a musician. Michael Jackson was an entertainer. Uh, Beyonce is an entertainer. That's not a disrespectful thing. Cause, and I mean, cause when I say entertainer, I mean that with the utmost respect. I mean that with the most badass uh, props you can properly give to somebody that we call a whole lot of folks an entertainer and we should not. You know, in some ways that's a confusion with Kanye West is that Kanye West is a musician 
and people try to make him an entertainer, but he, to me, he doesn't quite do well there as an, as an entertainer. He's all right, but he's not all the way there as an entertainer. Prince was probably one of the few who uh, could do both, could be a major entertainer and be a musician. Um, you know, but that was because he could play everything. You know, the only he played everything but the brass instruments, and it wasn't because he couldn't. It's just because he didn't like them. So it it it. Uh, Prince was a phenomenal talent, once in a lifetime talent. I try to tell people too. That's the one of the things that lucky about being in the era I was born in. We had Prince, uh, Michael Jackson, Madonna, and Bruce Springsteen. Four of the badasses people of music. You ain't gotta like they stuff. It don't matter. When you look back at that era when they were young, up until their 50s and we started losing people, Prince Michael Jackson, Bruce Springsteen and Madonna were everything in music. And so, you know, it's hard to look at that many big names and be uh, 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 have anything to say. These people were forced to be major entertainers. They were forced to be musicians. They were forced to be songwriters because they had to constantly, I like what you said, they couldn't sit back on their laurels because when they had a triumph, they had to go bigger. And I think in some ways it might've destroyed Michael Jackson because Michael Jackson just did things. If you look at that off the wall album and then you get Thriller, some people would be lucky in their careers to have either one. I think Prince pulled back in some ways. Because Purple Rain, I don't know, he wanted that Michael Jackson life. You know, Michael Jackson, there's somebody in a, living in a hut in Bangladesh somewhere that knows who Michael Jackson is. It just, it, it just is. And I just don't think Prince ever wanted to be that famous. Mm -mm, and, you know, and I, I think that's why he kind of pulled back and went in the opposite direction. He could have gave us 20 more Purple Rains. He didn't do that. And I think part of it, he didn't like that level of fame. He didn't like that level of attention like that. Right. Because if you look at Prince and Michael, I think it was a healthy mutual respect for the for the other. And they were kind of eyeing each other saying, okay, like how the Lakers were keeping track of the Celtics and vice versa. Like, okay, mm -hmm. I got to come mm -hmm. up here. I got to come up here. But Prince, to have all these theater acts from the time, Apollonia 6, Vanity 6, Maserati, and constantly just pouring out material. And I just looked at it as a genius, but with that genius comes the ability to be able to kind of constrain folks like Jam and Lewis, because they do, hey, mm -hmm. we're better than just doing songs that Prince had where he's doing the vocal guy and everything. We want to show that we can do on our own too. And I think sometimes when you have that type of genius, you're kind of scared to let others flourish because you don't want to take that shine off. Just kind of like how Rick James, when Prince was opening for him, felt that Prince was gunning for him. Like, oh, this young guy's coming for my spot. He was. Prince was being an ass. There's no denying that. If you dig into the history, Prince was being an ass. Prince was showing up and uh, he was on his bodyguard shoulders walking around during the concert crowd when right before Rick was getting ready to perform. Prince knew what he was doing. Uh, there's no denying that. Um, I, I do think he was a little bit afraid of, of Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. Um, uh, but, you know, they both say and thank him forever for firing them because they would have never really gone out on their own like that if he hadn't done that. And so, you know, I think um, that's why Prince wasn't always good at realizing who wasn't particularly talented in his circle and he wasted an album on. Maserati is horrible. Um, I don't can't remember. Uh, Carmen Electra was worse. 
um, you know, uh, uh, you know, you really had to follow his blueprint to stay in his world. Who's underrated coming out of Princess World? Wendy and Lisa, Sheila E. Um, you know, there's some great people. Jill, uh, Jill Jones uh, has an amazing first album. That that first album is perfect, and people sleep on that all the time. Um, you know, but Prince was this kind of tortured genius. I think it says something that Michael Jackson never really produced a acolyte or an ally group. You know, he was too focused on himself. I'm not mad at that. I just don't think that was his thing. Um, you know, uh, I would have loved to have seen a collaboration, but you know, as Prince said, uh, he was supposed to be on the bad single. And the first line he was supposed to say is your ass is mine. I'm with Prince. He was never going to do that. So, you know, it, it's, um, I'm grateful to be around in the era to see their talent. We need to remember these people were human beings and that they were flawed people and that that doesn't necessarily take away from the music. Um, Michael Jackson was in a lot of pain. Uh, Michael Jackson was going through a lot of stuff that I don't think a lot of us even really know all of. Um, and it led him to make decisions that hurt other people. Hurt people, hurt people. Um, you know, it hurts me till no end that Prince died the way he died. Um, um, it's beyond painful because I loved Prince. I truly did love Prince. Um, you know, I cried. I cried like I cried when Tupac died. Um, it just, it just felt like someone who got me that, uh, cliche, the soundtrack of my life was Tupac, Prince, and Tina Marie. And to lose them um, so young and so early um, has really changed music for me. Um, I really do kind of listen to music now because I, uh, you know, but I listen to older music because it brings me back to something important about my life. Right. And speaking of Tupac, I've been seeing a lot of young kids wearing the shirts with Tupac from Poetic Justice and how, you know, with everything that's going on in this country now, imagine how big Tupac's voice would have been and how we were truly robbed of what more he could have gave us same thing with biggie what more biggie could have gave us you know those two gone too soon and how the whole east coast west coast rivalry was really just a shame it was a um cost we it wasn't worth the cost that war wasn't worth the bill that we had to pay that was a very high bill to pay um what i loved about biggie he was a reflective guy and I think his music would have grown and reflected as he matured. Um, Tupac's power, he was never the greatest MC, but Tupac's power was because he was so prolific is when I remind people how he dominated the charts and he was dead for a decade. Um, that is a, a significant testimony to his ability to be a storyteller. Um, he could tell that story of the streets and it would be so much different in this world if they were alive, those two men in particular it would really be meaningful if they were still alive. Right, and before we go into Southern hip hop, I wanna talk about the whole funk scene out of the Bay Area, like Sly and the Family Stone, Graham Central Station, you mentioned Sheila E, and then we had later on acts such as Club Nouveau, Timex Social Club, Tony, 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 and uh, In Vogue, which was discovered by Foster and McElroy who were in Club Nouveau. Well, Club Nouveau is 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 my guilty pleasure. I love that debut album. I actually got to see them live, I believe, with 
a young Bobby Brown and another favorite R&B group of mine, Ready for the World. Or um, Ready for the Curl, uh, as I like to call whoa. it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, yeah, Club Nouveau. Um, um, I think they got dismantled by the whole copyright thing and then the fighting between the two, the Timex Social Club and Club Nouveau. I think that dismantled those two groups, those voices, which was very unfortunate. Um, but that Club Nouveau album is so very good. That Let It Go song is one of my favorite uh, slow jams. Um, that young lady, and I'm sorry, I, I can't call her name. It was phenomenal to me, a phenomenal singer. And uh, But yeah, Club Nouveau, I think one of the things we forget about California R&B is the impact of Latin jazz, like Sheila E's family. Um, that connection, that mix, just like in New York City, there was these different voices that came together. And of course, out here in Cali, we have lowrider culture. And it was the Latinx community that saved that doo-wop music, um, the, you know, Roger and Zap um, that saved that music, that Carlos Santana. Um, these are the things that they um, brought to the culture and saved for the culture. So when West Coast hip hop came together, we had a good mix of black and brown music. We had Kid Frost, you know, uh, um, you know, we had the uh, 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 Mellow Man Ace. Going away from uh, uh, yeah, Mellow Man Ace, because Minta Rosa. So, you know, you, then you had Nid Cypress Hill. And so you had all of these groups uh, that were kind of a mixture. Of, of a California sound. That's what California sound, just like New York, you cannot talk about West Coast hip hop without the influence of, of Latinx folks um, because it was extremely important that they were present. You had Ivy Queen, you have female rappers in the Latinx community and they contributed to this sound. They contributed to uh, that you had to appeal. This is why a lot of Cali hip hop had that doo-wop, you, you know, wrapped over doo-wop or incorporated doo-wop sounds into their sampling because they understood the low rider culture. Um, you know, you get a bit of it in Easy E's music, you know, only if you want it, you know, that usage of, of, of that stuff, you know. So um, I think Cali hip hop, Cali R&B was really reflective of a very beautiful time in my home state. And, and that's, I think it's key. That's its main key. Yeah, because I can remember being six, seven years old watching on MTV BT the video for Nothing But a G Thing, Gin and Juice yeah. for Snoop, Regulator, Warren G, Rest in Peace, Nate Dogg, and how that was my introduction as a young kid from North Carolina as to what life in Southern California really was. And also can't forget to mention a CMW, Contest Most Wanted, um, ab above the law, um, AMG, Ant Banks, uh, King T, Aunt Banks. Spice One. <laughs> yeah, well, but you can't leave out Yo-Yo either. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, Yo-Yo is Yo-Yo is beloved here. Um, she's actually uh, uh was on K Day as a DJ for a while. Um, I don't know what station she's on now, but I know she's doing radio, but when she comes out and she performs from time to time, Yo-Yo is well-beloved, um, you know, um, uh, she put out the Black Feminist Anthem, Black Pearl, um, you know, it, it, we do have a selection of artists, um, I can remember seeing the Women in Hip Hop tour here in LA, 
at an arena that no longer exists where uh, Queen Latifah <coughs> was the headliner, but it was NC Light. Um, you know, you got to see a, a whole lot of female artists. Um, that's the other reason why I love the golden age of hip hop, that 90s, uh, late 80s, early 90s, uh, because that's when hip hop women were diverse and you had all kinds of voices. My favorite all time, and she's overlooked, is um, uh, uh, Sweet Tea. Okay, Sweet Tea is, is one of my personal favorites. Uh, her debut album is absolutely perfect. Every song on there is good. Um, you know, um, we've lost a few people there early. Um, you know, the cool, um, lost, we lost the DJ. You know, we've lost a lot of hip hop people a lot earlier than I thought. And it's gotten scarier to have the ones in my age group passing away for various health issues. Um, you know, Black Rob, losing Black Rob, um, Nate Dogg. You know, and Nate Dog is a glue to a lot of West Coast hip hop. I actually don't know how you go see a lot of West Coast hip hop. I'll be interested to see at this show who they use for Nate Dog. I haven't been to a show to hear any of these older cats who had hits with Nate Dog who they used. So I will be interested to see that. Yeah, and we also lost uh, Ecstasy from uh, Houdini. Ooh, doof. Houdini. I'll go. I'll go, I'll go old with you, son. I saw Fresh Prince, Houdini, um, Cool Modi, and then my all-time favorite MC, Rakim. Rakim is my favorite MC. Um, it, it was amazing. You know, it was such a different time. It was such a good time about going to a, a, a concert and just having a good time and really being entertained and then getting this amazing MC performing with Rakim. I, I just love Rakim. Rakim is, will always be my favorite MC. I love Pac. I do. I love Pac. He's my most beloved MC, but Rakim is my all-time hand-down favorite. Yeah, because if you look at MCs before Rakim, it was very, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> and but Rock but Rakim had that calm melodic flow, very jazzy, that staccato, and it was very pleasing to the ears, and the beats were bumping too. Yes, I agree with every single bit of that. He was a grown man, that's what I like. Mm -hmm. And he was one of those when he spoke, he meant what he said. Mm -hmm. Now, what was your thoughts on the recent versus battle between Big Daddy Kane and KRS One? Oh, I think hip hop fans won that day. Um, it was just beautiful to see. Cash One and, and Big Daddy Kane are Hall of Famers. There's no question about what they were doing, but it was it was beautiful to see that meshing of two different styles, um, uh, that ability to entertain. I think that show so showed something that's been lost in hip hop, that those guys could come out as 50-somethings and entertain and move the crowd in a way that was about lyrics, was about dancing, was about style, um, where some groups today can't do that. They can't do that without some of that Travis Scott crap that got people killed the other day. Um, you know, th those verses um, have been hit or miss, but um, that Big Daddy Kane Karras one one was an instant classic. Um, the one where Jadakiss destroyed my boys, the diplomats, 
because I love the diplomats, but Jada Kiss handed them their asses. Um, and because Jada Kiss is in the, to me, in the mold of Rakim, he's a grown ass man when he's on the mic, he's saying what he's saying and opening that show with who shot you and really going forward was the message he wasn't playing and the diplomats never recovered. And um, that shame on them. And I guess I'll say the difference for me, it seemed like all those years I thought diplomats was boys and they was really friends. It seemed like to me, they never knew each other. But D-Block, those is friends. That's a family. And it came across in that show. Right. And you could tell with that versus battle between the locks and Dipset that they're MCs, MCs. And how their time with Bad Boy, say what you want about Diddy. Diddy gonna yeah. make sure you gonna give a show. Yeah. Well, Diddy was like Prince. Diddy was one of those those sons of Prince. Prince expected everybody to participate in the show from the drummer to the synthesizer to the guitarist. You were going to perform in the show. Everybody was going to dance on time or I was going to find you. You were going to put on a show from beginning to end. And Diddy always understood that. You can hate Diddy. Well, number one, Diddy got on people's nerves because Diddy started to think he was biggie and he wasn't but the thing was diddy was a showman so that's the other thing you need to add in there about understanding language there's entertainers there's musicians and there's showmen jermaine dupree could put a foot in a, a lot of the different categories but he also was a showman but diddy primarily was a showman and he understood how to put on a show and you know how that made a difference it made a difference for Nas, and it made a difference for d-block and so you know we might have been eh, that we didn't want to see these hardcore rappers with Diddy, but Diddy gave them a, a polish that in some ways worked for them. It never worked in terms of a full embrace. You know, like Hate Me Now, a lot of people hate that song, but, and we don't want to see Nas in a, a shiny suit, but there was a certain level of polish to that. It didn't work fully for Nas, but it gave him a revitalization and his biggest hits. So we have to be real about that. So we have to respect Diddy, even though we need to respect artists, even though they occasionally get on your nerves. Mm -hmm. I agree. And uh, we mentioned uh, the locks and how they're on Rough Riders. Can we talk about the legacy and the greatness and the impact of the late, great DMX? Ooh, now DMX is one of my, you know, I, I have heard such hurt feelings about hip hop. Um, so much of my top 10, top five MCs are gone. Um, I loved DMX. I love DMX because he really talked about things a lot of artists weren't talking about. You know, when, when a lot of artists are talking about, oh, I'm crazy and I'm whacked in my mind and all this other kind of stuff, DMX was really talking about mental illness. DMX was really talking about the struggle of living on the streets and wanting to do better and not seeing an option to do better. Um, uh, DMX um, was like shaft on wax. You know, DMX was this black exploitation dude on wax uh, because, you know, when he would growl, that meant something. And when he go, huh, it was just like, you know, that, uh, you know, he just could tell stories in the most interesting way. And I am so hurt and sorry that his drug addiction got in the way of his legacy. And because he, we should have gotten so much more work from him 
and we just never got it. People tried to save him and they couldn't save him. And, and what bothers me is ultimately at the end, he might've been turning a corner. He mm-hmm. might've been getting away from that drug addiction and it, and it got him. All those years of abuse on his body got him. And so, you know, DMX is, um, I don't think underrated, um, but I think he will be, we'll have to remind people about DMX because we lost him before we should have. Um, not enough people got to see DMX live. He was wonderful live. Um, and he ultimately was a good dude, you know? And mm-hmm. I loved his commitment um, to the street and to being that dude. Like, you know, he's, you know, when he, when he used to say, you know, uh, don't you know, you know, talking about your stuff will get you hit. You know, it, it just, it, it just, he was real. Um, you know, so that's a, that's a tough loss. DMX, Pac is two hard losses for me in terms of my hip hop love. Right. And, um, transitioning over to Southern hip hop, um, prior to everything that was kind of out of Atlanta, LaFace with Outkast, Goody Mob, Ludacris, Southern hip hop was still seen as booty music that was coming out of Miami with Uncle Luke and the Miami bass. And then of course you had what was coming out of Memphis with 8-Ball, MJG, 3-6 Mafia, Rap-A-Lot, Jay Prince, Ghetto Boys, and how when Andre 3000 got on that stage at the Source Awards, he said the South got something to say and the South is still standing, still rising, and everybody's looking at Atlanta and saying, hey, you know, we want to do what you know, JD's doing, Dallas doing, DJ Toomp, uh, Raheem the Dream, DJ Taz, Lil John, uh, King Edward J in those infamous King Edward J mixtapes and how Atlanta really was the focal point for everything that was coming out of the South. And then we later see the movement that was coming out of New Orleans with Cash Money and No Limit. Well, I think Southern music, when it decided to embrace who it was, and basically said to hell with the East Coast, the West Coast, and the Midwest, we're going to do whatever we're going to do. And I think that's what opened doors for them. When they realized, you know, well, you're criticizing us about this booty music. Well, we're going to fully embrace this booty music, and then we're going to twist it up, and we're going to do and say other things. I think it changed all that. It never stopped being booty music. But what it started being was better produced music. What it started to be was better MC. You know, that that whole period there where Paul Wall got introduced, um, you know, Slim, you know, you had all these guys that came out and started establishing their own personalities. One of the things, like I liked what you said earlier in our discussion, one of the problems with genius is sometimes the genius, the footprint on the genius is too big. And Jermaine Dupree's footprint on people was so big, sometimes they couldn't stand apart. And I think it messed up crisscross, it messed up the brat, because it's like, you know what, the little kids group that said, you know, we're real kids, we ain't telling Jermaine's life stories. It was, it was, it was a problem. But when Outcast, who's undeniable talent, came along and began to tell their own stories and shifted it up and went from players ball to elevators, because elevators is my favorite song. That AT Aliens album is my favorite Outcast album. I know there's better albums, but that's my favorite. Um I think they were allowed to be their own music. When they stopped worrying about what other people were doing and went on and Ludacris was just like, you know what? Y'all can make call me this clown prince of hip hop. I'm going to be something else. 
And I think in a lot of ways, crunk music, dirty South music snuck up on the rest of the world and kind of gave this slap, knocked people out um, with the level of talent, the level of diverse music. Um, you know, that Shorty Swing My Way, that whole album that came out of Jermaine Dupree's house, um, to me, flipped the script. I, it just, um, I don't think, we've got some great books, academic books that have come out on the South, um, you know, um, that um, are really giving much more credit to how groundbreaking Southern rap was um, and how Three Six Mafia, um, you know, when you think about a song like Money in the Bank or um, uh, Ice Cream Paint Job, um, you know, these are, are the use of a voice rhythmically in Southern rap is, I think, a very unique talent that is underrated. You know, these guys were like, you know, they use their voice for the bounce and you would go with their voice and they would help you get the beat that to me, if you saw them go acapella, you could love it without the beat. And hip hop sometimes struggles that way. And, but Southern rap could do that without the beat. And I think it gave something to it. And then they quickly outgrew Uncle Luke, even though Uncle Luke can still sh get people to shake their bottoms, but they outgrew Uncle Luke. They outgrew Uncle People. You know, I mean, when we, who's underrated? The Ghetto Boys. I just did a lecture at the University of Warsaw and I was telling them about the Ghetto Boys and I had to go back and listen to that. Scarface is one of my favorite rappers. And, and I think he's highly underrated. And so it, it's, it's Southern music still needs to get its due. We give, uh, Outkast deserves all the flowers in the world, but we still have left a whole lot of people out of the Dirty South discussion. Yeah, I agree. And now uh, speaking of Southern hip hop and the movement, um, she just received her star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Can we talk about the impact of Misty, Misdemeanor Elliott, and how she was able to straddle um, between hip hop and R&B? Uh, Missy Elliott is one of the greats. Uh, Missy Elliott actually surpassed the dude that kind of some people gave more credit to Timberland than they gave to her, but I think she has surpassed Timberland uh, because she has, you know, Timberland has never achieved as much success as an artist as Missy Elliott has. Uh, Missy Elliott also has a serious illness that has limited the type of work that she's done, but Missy Elliott's rediscovery when people brought her out, when Katy Perry brought her out, and people were like, you know, who's this new artist? And everybody was like, fool, that's Missy Elliott. It, it's the standing of time of your production work and your writing that you could come out with something that was a huge hit in the first place and then make it a huge hit a second time. Um, Missy Elliott is, is, I think, appreciated, but in terms of superstar status, she's underrated. And Missy Elliott is a superstar. When you go back to that first album, that first video, you know, Hype Williams, um, it, it's, he's a great video director, but it's also the artist willing to put themselves out there and the rain and blowing herself up in that garbage bag. And we make parodies of it now, but that was so original and so unique. And Missy's willingness to put herself out there in a very different way with the finger waves and, uh, you know, to put herself out there as an artist is very important too. I, I wish hip hop did a better job at looking at when artists put themselves out there in a unique way. What MC Hammer did to choose to be a major showman, to be a major dancer was extremely unique for the time. 
you know, Kanye West putting himself out there as the backpack uh, era of rappers that these guys who knew they weren't bad guys, knew they weren't gangsters and to come out and they were gonna do their music. They were gonna talk about God. They were gonna talk about their struggles with women. They were gonna talk about struggles with their looks and how they felt about themselves. These were very brave moments in time. And we need to give a little more credit for that type of work because Missy Elliott is one of those. Missy Elliott always played with her image. Missy Elliott shaved her head for God's sake. These are different things that artists do to show a full commitment to their art. And Missy Elliott has always been one of those that made this full commitment to her art. Yeah, because if you look at, you mentioned Missy, we mentioned Madonna earlier, even Lady Gaga, how they all changed their image to say, hey, I'm gonna be more than just a one trick pony. And we were speaking about Jodeci earlier, you can't deny Devante's eye for talent. Missy, Timbaland, Genuine, Tweet, player recipe static major and how all all of that came from the tidewater area of virginia 757 later the neptunes teddy set up shot at shop at future studios but i want to talk about north carolina and how hip-hop wise i think now we're starting to get our just due in terms of hip-hop the one person that really started it all for NC hip hop. And I didn't realize how much history the triad of North Carolina, Greensboro, what's the same high point had in hip hop until, you know, talking with various mutual friends, what have you, just how influential and instrumental Ski Beats is in the industry. And Jay-Z just recently got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But if you look at the Reasonable Doubt album, most of the production done by Ski Beats, Camp Low mm-hmm. of Time Saturday Night, done by Ski Beats, Original Flavor, Ski Beats was in the group, and that was one of the first early appearances of Jay-Z, Can It Get Open? So can we talk about the influence of North Carolina in hip-hop and how now everybody's starting to recognize NC as more than just the home of Michael Jordan, Pepsi, and Texas Pete? Yeah, well, because see, North Carolina is also the home of some of the most wonderful HBCUs. And that sound from those marching bands is a part of our of our world. You know, Petey Pablo, whatever you feel about Petey Pablo, uh, uh, brought that attention to the North Carolina A&T marching band. Um, I think North Carolina gets forgotten because we're not one of these kind of meccas. You know, our, our mecca is more the triangle, Winston-Salem, Raleigh, and, uh, you know, those spaces in, in, in Greensboro. And where Charlotte, our major city, is not the heart, the hub of cultural life. It's the triangle. And so I think it makes it hard for people to pay attention. But this type of music, North Carolina style of music, North Carolina's embrace of R&B and hip hop has always been present. If one of the things I really loved and miss about North Carolina is our local music. The local music there, the hip hop scene, the R&B scene was always interesting. It was always something you could get into. We always had these underground groups that you could go see and perform in Greensboro uh, that could sing and could do music. And we never really unfortunately had that sort of what was present in other states like, you know, uh, Master P and Baton Rouge and, uh, uh, you know, as you said, Dallas Austin and Jermaine Dupree. We didn't ever have that like mega producer guy. You got Ninth Wonder later on, you know, but he was a, a hip hop guy. He wasn't an R&B guy. And, you know, and then he had his own way of working. And so we have produced some very interesting stuff. And I just don't think we've ever had that person 
who stayed in North Carolina created that serious body of work. And that's why North Carolina gets uh, overlooked. Um, it's not because we don't have the trappings or the talent or the people doing the work. We just don't have that producer like Timberland and like you said, Devante, who settled into Virginia and decided this was their home or um, uh, the Neptunes. We, we've never really had that kind of um, talent settle in North Carolina. I kind of don't understand that. North Carolina is beautiful, but it's also like there's some good music in South Carolina and they don't have that person either. Uh, but Miami, you know, they had people, they had uh, Uncle Luther Campbell. You need that person. Sometimes you need that charismatic person that I'm going to stay in my state, I'm going to open a label, and I'm going to produce music out of this state, and I'm going to take over this state. We never really had that in North Carolina. So I think that's part of the reason no, uh, North Carolina music is overlooked. Yeah, no, we didn't, because I felt had social media been bigger than when it was came out, I felt Little Brother would have been bigger. Little brother should have been bigger. But remember, there was controversy. People didn't like the title of their of their record. They didn't like the cover of the record originally, and then they had to change it. Um, that's a classic album. Um, you know, but but you know, you can easily get derailed in this business if the your first initial debut to the public kind of gets fumbled. And so, you know, that's kind of what happened. Um, you know, but little brother, there's no denying amongst people who know hip hop, that's a classic album. Yeah, it took me a minute. I like the minstrel show, but I always had a soft spot towards the listening. Yeah, I, I me too. I think I'm with you on that. Um, you know, it took me a while to 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 get the minstrel show. Um, but I like I like the second album. All right. Um, but you know, some very interesting people came out of that work though. Um, and then that's the thing, is because we didn't have that anchor in North Carolina, they didn't necessarily stay there. They started branching off and working with the more established people. And so that's why I say it's real important that they stayed, that we needed somebody to stay in the state. You know, Texas folks are Texas folks. You know, Scarface didn't go running off uh, down south to Florida or to Louisiana when they started getting hard. He stayed where he was. And, you know, it, it, it's interesting that some of the dudes that were thriving with 50 Cent thrived bigger when they moved back to Tennessee, you know, because it, 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 it's where they were from and, they, and a sound fit them. You know, it's sort of like Alabama. Alabama has produced some good artists and has produced some good music, but they don't necessarily have that anchor, that anchor DJ, that anchor producer, that anchor um, executive. Mm -hmm. You know, you need somebody who's interested in the business. Right. To, to make your state shine, in my opinion. Right. Now, one person who I was surprised that was as big as they became was Nelly. Okay. I, I, I kind of not. Um, I mean, um, country grammar for me, excuse me, not to cut you off. Country no, go grammar, ahead, no, go ahead. Yeah, country grammar, when I first heard it, I was like, okay, it's a nice little hit and everything. But then when EI and Hot and Her and everything came out after that, I was like, oh, he got something to say and he really put St. Louis on the map and the Midwest was kind of long overlooked in the rap scene because you had Nelly and then Eminem out of Detroit and everything that came out of there with D12, Royce the 5'9", and how Eminem and 50, they really had the Midwest on lock, I believe. Well, we're still overlooking the Midwest because Detroit doesn't care. That's what I love about Detroit music. They don't care if you like it or not. Their music coexists. There's certain areas that their music coexists, whether you like it or not. 
Um, I like talking about Detroit, Michigan hip hop because they don't care about you. They make their own money and they eat um, because it's Detroit versus everybody. They make their money and eat whether the rest of the world likes their music or not. If they go mainstream, cool. But if they, but the way their city works, the way their state works, their music travels the whole state. It travels the whole Midwest. They're going to make money. So that's why drill music, which never really took off anywhere else, drill music still does what it does because it was a Midwest phenomenon. I think that's what's interesting about them. There's some St. Louis artists that are doing quite well in St. Louis and their music has just not translated to outside of St. Louis. I just think Nelly, if you listen to the rest of his partners from those early days, they knew Nelly was gonna be a star. Nelly was charismatic, Nelly is, was handsome. Um, there was something about Nelly and Nelly stepped into a void. You know, Nelly stepped into a void that a lot of, you know, there were all these gangster gangsters, I'm gonna shoot everybody and hip hop and then Nelly, brought back this kind of bad boy uh i'm gonna talk about everyday living type stuff and so you know he fit a void i i was never mad at nelly i think the problem is and and i'd love to hear your thoughts on this the problem is is when some of these guys got really big they forgot who they were and they also forgot that they had become very wealthy and they kind of didn't have much to say once they reached the top. You know, Nelly, that sweatsuit album is horrible. <laughs> and, you know, and it, it, it's, and part of that is it's like, that wasn't Nelly. I don't know what you were trying to say. Whereas the T.I. Tip album is very different because T.I. had a very distinct, T.I. knew where he came from. And T.I. was able to articulate where he had gone. And so his kind of dual personality, because that's what Nelly was trying to do, was talk about this dual personality of coming from poverty in the streets to rising to the heights of fame and wealth. And he just didn't do a good job with it. And I don't think his people did him a good service. T.I. has a very good understanding of who he is and who his audience is. So when his albums have stumbled, he's been forgiven. Um, and he's been able to get an opportunity, but a sweatsuit destroyed Nelly. That, you know, you got to get your eagle on, girl. I, I, that's still one of the worst songs ever. Yeah, it was a hit, but it was horrible. It just it just kind of made a parody of him. And I, I think he was do better than that. So, you know, one of the things about hip hop is that it's still young and it's still new about how to continue a career and how to maintain a career. I still think we mistreat black wealth we mistreat black talent that we don't really love them white white business entertainment does not love black entertainers and it doesn't really have an intention to keep them going so if you are not a phenomenal talent you it's going to be very hard for you to maintain a career and so you know i think that's what happened to nelly the record companies and those people did not take care of him to make sure he was maintaining quality music Right, and we also we mentioned Nelly and Eminem out the Midwest, but also the sounds of Chicago, Common when he was Common Sense, Twister, yeah. Do or Die, Crucial Conflict, and how Crucial Conflict. Yeah, because I I heard just recently it was a middle school, a high, it was a high school band. They were playing Hey, and I'm like, yeah. do they know they're not <laughs> talking about 
the barn hay they're hey. talking about yeah. that other hay that's now legal in uh certain states and then when we look at the rise of the uh, women in hip-hop you know we could go far back far as um pebbly Pooh, sparky d roxanne shantae mc light queen latifah Moni love and of course meyer we had foxy brown Lil Kim and now Meg Thee Stallion, Cardi B, City Girls, and how when WAP came out, it just had people clutching their pearls. And I'm sitting there thinking, like, this ain't nothing new. We had put it in your mouth by Akinelli. Well, and you had Millie Jackson, who was always talking dirty and nasty on her stuff. Slow um, tongue. To me, and then I think what upset people about WAP was the fact that this was a uh, um, young girls. That's my dog in the back. He's hungry. Um, it it it's um, I think WAP was was uh, women choosing to present themselves. Oftentimes, women have been the pawn in this type of stuff. They didn't have a say. It's a big difference between WAP and Ciara in O. Oh, you know, uh, Ciara, that's your song, but you're kind of the video hoe in your own song. In WAP. Um, Cardi B and Meg Thee Stallion are celebrating the female form. They're celebrating themselves. Uh, City Girls and that song what they did with Cardi B, Twerk, they're celebrating. There's not a man in that video. There's not an eyeballing man in that video. Those videos are not made for the male gaze. Those videos are made for the female gaze. And that's the difference. We have arrived in a different place. Women in hip hop still have the same problems. It's always that. But the difference is now that I think a lot more women MCs are making their own choices. We could still have more diversity. I'm a little concerned about this replacing, upgrading and replacing by age. You know, Nicki Minaj is kind of uh, being uh, aged out by Cardi B and then uh, Meg Thee Stallion just by the virtue of talent is kind of edging out Cardi um, because they're kind of the same age. But I, I just think we could have more diverse voices Rhapsody should be a lot bigger than what she is just based on her talent. Um, but that's always been one of the biggest struggles in this business is the sexism and the misogyny. And I will go back again to part of the reason of this is the fact that hip hop still remains a rebellious genre of music. It remains a genre of music that Black people, even though it's our art, don't fully control. And so the presentation of getting out there, the pie is still smaller than it should be. And so the things that um, plague black male producers and MCs and artists um, trickle down and make it worse for black female producers, artists, et cetera. So I just think it's just, a, it's still the same vicious system. It's grown some, but it still needs to grow some more. Right, I agree. And the uh, last thing I'm going to get you out, get you out of here on this, we're going to switch and talk about how what we've been saying the past eight plus years in our country, how it's a big divide between political, racial, gender lines, and how with PWIs, a lot of minority students are kind of feeling where it's not really a safe space to really embrace culture. Because like, as we're seeing with various social media platforms, you can post misinformation and people be misled and how you're feeling like am I really wanted and celebrated here or am I tolerated just because I need to be on the front of your brochure and we're mm -hmm. seeing our country right now is in the middle of one big FYM if you don't know what I'm talking about watch Fear of a Black Hat mm -hmm. <laughs> well 
I'll say this, young man. Um, I hope to be there. Uh, I hope to be there when it happens. You will be there when it happens. You'll be a grandfather when that happens. But in 2050, this will be a minority majority country. Um, what we are seeing right now is fear of people of color because you have treated people of color like trash for centuries. And now we're going to outnumber you. And this is the last grasp of power and money and control. And the thing is, is that you told us for years that we needed to go to college. We needed to open businesses. We needed to take care of our own business. Well, now black folks, Latinx folks and Asian folks and Muslim folks have done all of that. And so you do have a significant population, not enough, but a significant population of people who have education, who have money, who have managed to amass some type of power. And so what the white power group is seeing is pressure. They're seeing pressure because you can't put the genie back in the bottle now. We ain't going back. And so I would say for particularly when you talk about education, this was the importance of being at UNCG. UNCG had 17,000 students, but I always felt like I was in a black space. I haven't been there in many years. I don't know how it is now. But having an African-American studies department, having a very active black student body made me always feel I was in a black space. Now, part of that was being in what I consider a black city, partially black city of Greensboro, of having a, H, a major HBCU there. We always had North Carolina A&T to kind of anchor us and mix things up. And we had this partnership with them. I think you're absolutely correct that PWIs at other places that don't have that connection. I wouldn't want to be a black student at the University of Iowa. I wouldn't want to be a black student at the University of Missouri. Um, these are not spaces that have that anchor. I think that's why you're seeing more black students choosing to go to HBCUs because your undergraduate years should be fun. Your undergraduate years should be an alma mater that you enjoy. And I think even though we went through some mess at UNCG from time to time, the students I taught, the students from my era, um, care about U CSUB. They, I mean, uh, UNCG. They, they love to be in there. They care about one another. Um, you know, there's been a black alumni function going on for at least a decade now at uh, UNCG, which I think is really important. Um, you know, they got in our way sometimes, but they weren't scared of us, and so that's the key. You're either gonna change or you're gonna get ran over. Um, I believe that wholly in my heart. We're gonna have some difficult years. This divide is gonna get worse before it gets better. Um, but I think if we hang in there and we keep fighting, these folks are gonna to have to adjust because I have been lucky and blessed in my career to be connected to a, a intelligent, dynamic, loving group of young people who are now coming into their own in their 30s. And y'all gonna change this world. I'm firmly convinced of it. Um, you know, people can mess around if they want to, but you guys have seen it. You guys have been exposed to things. I know in your life, you never thought you'd end up in New Mexico, but there you are. Nope. But you're capable of handling New Mexico. So, um, we ain't scared. This it, It's just like Bone Crusher. We ain't never scared. This hip-hop generation is never scared. So y'all can do what you want. You can get all the Donald Trumps. You can get all the psychos you want to go, but they're old. And that violence, you know what, in the, in the 21st century, we can clap back too. 
So I think it's different. It's a different time. And we're going to get those knuckleheads out of here. You're either going to get along or you're going to get gone. Right. And it's a different That's world where you come from. Now, do you got any shout outs you want to give and plug current projects before we wrap? <laughs> um, well, I want to plug this. I've been just started getting to do podcasts. I'm hoping to do my own uh, podcast in future. So you will be getting a call from me, young man, to return the favor, to have you talk about your podcast and your projects for a long time. I want to shout out all my students from uh, UNCG. I, I have enjoyed uh, moving from being your professor to being your friends. Uh, that has been one of the greatest unexpected gifts. Um, I get to see all the kids and, and, and be a godmother around with all the kids. And I appreciate that and see the weddings and the graduate degrees and the successful careers. Um, uh, you know, uh, a number of young people have become teachers like me and it, it just warms my heart to hear them say, well, I decided to become a teacher because of you. And that just means the world. So, you know, that hip hop class, a couple of those African-American studies classes, um, you guys are my family. And I'll say a shout out to, to those that are part of Jarrell Mason's um, alumni class. Um, those are my babies. Those were my people. And you guys helped make me who I was. And I am uh, forever grateful. So that, that's what I'll say about that. I'll say, look out for me in 2022 and I'll come back and let Jarrell know it's going to be a big year for me. The next two years are going to be a big year for me. And so I will let y'all know when it pops off. For sure, you got an open spot to come back on anytime. And to quote Missy, beyond the album cover is copywritten. So don't copy me. I own the trademark, own your stuff. <laughs> Michael Jackson, Prince, Sam Cooke, all of them try to tell you, own your stuff. If you don't own it, you can't do nothing with it. Somebody files trademark. I own beyond the album cover. So if you want to try to use it, I will send you a cease and desist because I legally own it. All right. I love to hear that too. All right. Thank you, you young man. Yes, ma'am. You can catch this interview wherever you stream podcasts and on YouTube in video form, youtube.com slash beyond the album cover. And stay updated with the podcast at facebook.com slash beyond the album cover. Ladies and gentlemen, this woman has been very impactful in my life. Her class, one of my favorites at UNCG. I'm forever grateful and indebted that she took the time to come on this podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, Big round of applause and big thank you to Dr. Tracy Salisbury from Cal State University, Bakersfield. Thank you, Dr. Salisbury, for coming on. I appreciate you. You are welcome, young man. It was my pleasure. Thank you.